millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Just before we start this exciting episode of History Hack, a little shout out to say that we are on Patreon. If you head to patreon.com forward slash history hack, you can see all the amazing tiers which start from just three pounds a month. We know you all do so much for supporting us and we are ever so grateful for that. But if you're able to give us a bit of help through Patreon, we can keep this podcast going from strength to strength. We all thank you for your continued support. And without further ado... Hello and welcome to History Hack. I'm properly excited today because I've been looking forward to doing this episode for a long time. And not only have we got two amazing guests to talk about two remarkable people, I'm joined by the wonderful Charlotte White. Charlie, how are you? I'm good. Thank you, Matt. And how are you today? I'm good. Like I said, I'm, I'm, re- I'm really excited and I, I, I'm, I'm surrounded by books and notes and cups of tea to keep us going, because who do we have with us today, Charlie? Well, we're very excited because today we're going to be talking about Lee Miller and Roland Penrose, who were two remarkable characters at the centre of the interwar surrealism movement. Yes, we're going surreal here on History Hack today. Their legacies are living on today, and we're delighted to be joined by their son and their granddaughter to discuss their lives, their legacy, and the work of their archive at the stunning Farley's House in Sussex. So we have with us today Anthony Penrose and Amy Buhassane. Hi, guys. Hello. Good morning. Oh, Thank you so much for joining us. We've been trying to get this one in the books for a while, so thank you for bearing with sort of with me to, to get things in the diary. But I guess for for the wonderful Farley's house, how has lockdown been for, for you guys? Because it must have been a bit tricky. That's putting it mildly. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe like a white knuckle roller coaster ride, which they keep adding more track on to the end of would be more would be a better way of visualizing it. We um came back from the brink of having to close forever last june when we launched a crowdfunder we just realized that we wouldn't even if everyone was furloughed and even if we could bring everyone up uh, back and open we actually couldn't afford to pay anyone (laughs) anymore because we'd used all our reserves in trying to keep going and it was an amazing thing to see how many people out there really love Lee Miller and Roland Penrose and wanted to support Farley's House and Gallery and make sure that we did stay open and that gave us the strength and the courage to keep fighting and we've managed to get eventually a government 
um, Grant to help us through the winter and things, and we're still keeping fighting. <laughs> That's wonderful to hear. I, I sort of was following because you guys are just sort of over the Ashdown Forest for me. So it's it, it's been trying to get to you on those very few occasions, especially the last year when when there was moments of, of of brightness. And of course, now things are getting a little bit better. How 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 are visitor numbers? How how are things going with people coming down to see you? It's it's really lovely. Um, um visitor numbers are pretty good. It's just striking that balance because obviously covid's still out there and now we don't have to wear masks but we still also need to keep our staff safe and make sure that they don't all catch it so that we can still stay open luckily we've got a really big a lovely sculpture garden and we've got two gallery spaces as well as the house which is open so that enables us to have have more people come even though tours for the house we're still needing to restrict the numbers for and it can't it can't be easy to to try and stay open what with everybody being pinged by the app Amy yeah we had more than uh, half of our staff having to isolate at one point and when we were a small staff already we had to get my stepmom to come in and help out and my niece <laughs> suddenly decided that she, that she had to work for us too and things like that just just to keep the show going <laughs> oh my goodness yes family assemble yeah just to keep open so we should say that you are you are you're an author and also the co-director of the Farley's House and Gallery and the Lee Miller Archives along with Anthony who's also a photographer. So there's a, a very big family family bond in, in terms of occupation and keeping the work of Lee and Roland alive. Yeah, pretty much. They keep us, they keep us very busy. <laughs> I think Man Ray, the surrealist photographer, at one point said that um, if you extrapolated Lee to a national level, there would be no such thing as unemployment. And I, I think he got it right. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Let's let's start at the beginning. We mentioned we mentioned it in the introduction. So Anthony, can you explain to our, our listeners and to myself and Matt, what is surrealism? Well, surrealism is often called an art movement, but actually it was more a way of life. And that's how it began, because it came up out of people's objection and, and revulsion of the First World War. And initially there was an, uh, a movement called the Dada movement. And this was very nihilistic. It was you know, trying to destroy the concept of society as it was and question everything. And eventually that kind of burned out. And in about 1923, surrealism came along, which was a wonderfully freeing thing because it, it uh, encouraged people to think for themselves and to reject the kind of authority view of art. Instead of saying this is good because the academy says it's good, you get in there and you find out, do I like it? Does it move me? Is it worthwhile and meaningful or not? And that is your basis for really appreciating that piece of art. But it was way more than that because it was very much founded on the recent discoveries by Dr. Freud and Dr. Jung of psychoanalysis, and they were really interested in looking into the workings of the subconscious and all the all the sort of um, ways that we are actually 
owned and run by our subconscious in many ways. And that was fascinating for them. They loved all of that. And they were very free with themselves. They, uh, they were not going to be dominated by society or the church or the state in the way they lived their lives. So they were this fantastic, free-thinking bunch of liberal people who really carved out a life and a way of seeing for themselves. They loved finding the marvelous and the ordinary. They loved the absurd. They loved chance. They loved the way that things can happen without you wanting them to happen, but that is maybe the best thing that's ever occurred in your life, that sort of thing. And it, the randomness of it was really important. That sounds absolutely fantastic. I think I'd love to have been a part of that. So tell us, Anthony, where did, where did Roland fit into this? Where did Roland Penrose fit into this movement? Well, Roland, as a young man, had been through the First World War, as, uh, as uh, it served very briefly, albeit, as an ambulance driver. Uh, and then he went to Cambridge. And at Cambridge, fortunately, he met a wonderful guy called Roger Fry, who said the best thing that he could do would be to go to Paris and study art. And he did. And he landed up in Paris in the early 20s, just as surrealism was getting going. And he became part of that movement because he married a surrealist poet called Valentin Boué. And that really introduced him to the key figures like Max Ernst, and Paul Eluard and André Breton and Juan Miro and, and all of those guys who were having this extraordinarily, wonderfully poverty-stricken but rich in ideas and, and, and everything else uh, existence in Paris. And he was part of that. There's, there's something wonderful about that sort of whole image of being told, well, why, why don't you just go to, go to Paris, study mm. art? It's, it's, it's the dream. But then arriving at that incredible moment in time must have just been so incredible as, as, the, as the work then proved to be. Well, you see surrealism with its love of chance and randomness. You couldn't have planned that, could you? There was no way because nobody knew about these people anyway, but Roland just landed up in the middle of them. Gosh. What was Roland's work? What art did he start to produce? Was he, was he a painter? Was he a photographer? What, what was well, his, his background in painting was that his father was quite a successful Victorian portraitist, and he produced these, you know, very good portraits. And then he became very religious, and he produced kind of like heavy-duty uh, stuff about, you know, religious scenes and things like that, um, which actually Roland admired the technique and learned a lot of his father's technique but he couldn't stand a bar of the subject matter. And so that made him very susceptible to the ideas and the freedom of the Surrealist movement. Did he have a, a Quaker background? Yes, yes. My, my grandparents and, and, and Roland, in fact, uh, were, were Quakers. They were very a very pious lot. And um, I think Roland loved the the principles of being a Quaker, but he didn't like the constraints that went with it. And later on in life, towards the end of his life, he said, I could not have been such an ardent surrealist if I had not first been a Quaker. And when I start to analyze those two things together, yes, the Quakers are passionate about peace and freedom and justice and truth. And so were the surrealists. In a way, it was totally unexpectedly a perfect fit. <laughs> except perhaps hanging out with, with Picasso and his, his ilk in, in Paris at the turn of the century, a little bit more absent in the Surrealist movement. There were some things that would have shocked his parents to the core. <laughs> um, 
But I don't think that mattered because it's the fundamental guiding principles that were important. In in reading about about Roland, I've I've found it fascinating. I guess as an ardent pacifist, yet when the Spanish Civil War started, I guess through his friendship with Picasso, it, it was very much raising. Uh, I believe he was raising funds for the for the Republican side, and it, it that must have been an interesting position for him to find himself in. It was a very difficult position because. As a pacifist, he wanted to do everything he possibly could to stop the war. On the other hand, and I did talk to him about this, he recognized that that the Nazis in general, and Hitler particularly, were madmen who could not be stopped in any other way. They'd gone beyond any point of reason, and so there was no point in sitting down and trying to talk them through it. That just wouldn't work. And so he and his brothers actually joined the armed forces. Wow. I'm just going to say, we, we, we've mentioned Picasso. We're going to come back to Picasso, I think, because not only does he pay a part with Lee a bit later, but we, you had an interesting experience with him as well, Tony. But we'll come, we'll come back to that at, <laughs> at, at, the, at the end, because let's bring Lee into the story. Amy, where was Lee from? Because she's from a very different background to Roland. Yeah, she was born in Poughkeepsie, which is in a kind of a suburb um, in New York State in America. And she was born in 1907 to a a kind of an ordinary family, really. Her dad was an engineer and her mum had to, she was originally a nurse, but she'd had to stop working when she got married because those were the traditions in those days women were supposed to be tied to the kitchen sink and being a family type of person and not and not allowed a life but what was interesting about her upbringing she had an older brother called John and a younger brother called Eric and her older brother's absolutely fascinating by the way you'd like him Matt because he taught himself to fly at the age of 18 on a crop duster <laughs> and then he built himself his own plane and got a, he, he flew uh, with Amelia Earhart and and knew her and things like that he's absolutely he tried he also flew one of the early gyrocopters as well he's he's amazing amazing anyway wow. there was a lot I'm of brains lo- I'm, looking, I'm looking him up for sure yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Captain a, John Miller Captain John Miller, yeah. Theodore as a father in the early 1900s was really interesting because he treated, unusually treated all three kids the same. And as well as encouraging his boys, um, Eric and John, to be, you know, engineering and to have that kind of inquiring mind, he also encouraged Lee to, too. Um, at the age of seven, he gave her uh, her first chemistry set uh, he encouraged them to make go-karts and test them out and Lee was the the more daring of the three and she'd always be the one that would try it out first uh, and uh, there's a very there's a picture in the family album of Lee with a black eye which is a, a kind of a proud moment where John her older brother has punched her <laughs> he gave her this great grounding of equality and then when she goes out into the to the big wide world as she gets older it I think that helps her to question it um, as a woman and this the patriarchal values that she then faced her first job though was um, actually as a model 
she became a model uh, when she was 19 and ended up on the front cover of Vogue magazine just before her 20th birthday. Um, and very quickly had the top photographers in America wanting to take her picture and became the equivalent of a supermodel today. Uh, she just had that look. I mean, she she wasn't six foot like uh, and, and pencil thin like the models today. She was five foot seven and she had that kind of sporty, sporty look. And I think her career would have kept going as a model, but the picture was then one of her modeling pictures was used in an advert for a women's product called Kotex. And it was at that particular time, it was the first time in America that a woman's product had had an actual image associated with it. Up until then, Kotex had had drawings or descriptions and the photograph that was used, you know, she didn't know it was sold. It was sent to an agency by the photographer who was Edward Steich and, and they picked it up and sold it. And she just happened to be the first girl to model Kotex sanitary products in America. Amazing. But which, which I think she quite enjoyed as, as a kind of being notor you know, notorious, but it also killed her fashion career because <laughs> at that point that those kind of women products were seriously a taboo subject and it pretty much overnight nobody in America wanted the Kotex girl modeling their wow. posh rocks anymore oh. so it killed killed her career as a model in America but she she's always really good at turning things to her advantage and she wasn't going to let that you know sit around and think and mope about losing her career she used it as an excuse to leave America and go to Paris which she already knew was the kind of artistic capital of the world yes. and so that's how she got Steichen the guy that took the picture she found out he knew Man Ray the, who had who was an American from New York as well but he already had his photographic studio in Paris got a letter of introduction for him jumps on a boat and turns up there. She also has some offer of work as well from uh, American Vogue too. So she knows she's going to land on her feet financially and that she's got a good chance of getting a job. Gosh, I mean, we, we talked about the idea of, of chance in the surrealist movement. Lee Miller's modelling career, can I mean, the, the chance that was involved in getting the gig at Vogue is incredible. I, I read a story involving Condé Nast's car. Yes. Yeah. She was, um, well, it wasn't his car. He the one, he's the one that saved her from being run over by a truck or something. And she, was, she wasn't paying attention when she went across the road and this, didn't notice this car or truck coming towards her. And he had the presence of mind to, to whip her out of its path and save her save her life and she kind of true girly fashion fainted in his arms and when she came around he was like you have to come and work with <laughs> oh. and um, yeah I, I think I think if that hadn't happened she still would have been a model because she was already moving in those circles she already knew Steichen she already knew a lot of the fashion world and and the photographers uh, but that just made it a little bit quicker. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that that is the guy to me. I've got the picture here, which we'll put up on we'll put up on Twitter because it is so beautiful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And strange. strangely, people think that it's um, a, a surprise when they see it's a drawing. 
because they associate Lee with photography so much. But obviously in those times, it was photography in magazines was was only just starting to become a thing. And it was still artists that were were drawing. Mm -hmm. So she's by Georges Le Pape, the picture. Those those beautiful drawn front covers from Vogue in the in the, the late 20s are just so perfect and just beautiful to have have Lee immortalized in such a fashion so yes she she goes off to to Paris and uh, asks Man Ray to please tutor her and and teach her everything he knows and he's not very responsive to that no, he doesn't. He just he says he doesn't take you know, the letter of introduction was so that she be, could become his student. But he was like, no, I don't take students. <laughs> anyway, I'm away. I'm going away on holiday to Biarritz. <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, I know, and I'm coming with you. <laughs> What's often overlooked is she did actually already know her way around the camera because her dad was an amateur photographer. And and when she had she'd taken advantage when she was a model of you know badgering Steichen uh, Edward Steichen to tell her about his camera and how it works but Man Ray introduced her to surrealism and um, working with him as his assistant taught her the the extra bits that she needed to become a photographer in her own right and actually within less than a year of being in Paris she was uh, working in French Vogue uh, in their studio taking pictures. She was had her own photo- photographs being published in American Vogue. She, I mean, she was still modelling because she still had to pay the bills and the French didn't care two hoots about the Kotex advert. <laughs> they were a lot more liberal than the Americans. <laughs> So she, but she, it's amazing because when you, when you track her career, it's literally less than a year that she's being published in major magazines like American Vogue, French Vogue. And after that, and she's often written off as just being Man Ray's student in Paris, but actually she opened up her own studio and, and was selling her own work and operating as a photographer in her own right too, which is amazing and so gutsy uh, in a man's in in a male-dominated world you know you're talking this is in 1930 1931 to 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 operate your own business as a woman is is an an incredible achievement you have Dora Ma the um, photographer who was trying to do the same thing at the same time and actually her studio her Lee Man Ray and Dora Mar Studios were all within a block of each other in Paris at the same time. And, you know, Dora Mar felt that she couldn't operate as a photographer in her own right. And she, initially she um, used the name of the, a, a designer um, that she shared her studio with, who was called Kiefer, and she used his name as well. So her early fashion work is called, it's signed uh, Mar Kiefer. But actually, it's it's her work because she just felt that she had to kind of have this male persona attached to her to, to be a successful businesswoman. Gosh, how little changes. <laughs> <laughs> We're working on it, though, Charlotte. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know if I should follow that. Um, <laughs> Go on, Matt. Take us I, into I, romance. <laughs> yes, I, I was just going to say, I, I love that that period and the, and the work that that her and Man Ray and she did on, on her own, it, it's, it is so incredibly striking 
the and it's i think it's for me that the the lighting that they've managed to capture as well is just you know you look at it and you just can't figure well you probably could figure it out i can't because i'm not a very good photographer but it's a fantastic scene in paris in this time and Anthony, I suppose we have to ask, how did how did your parents meet? Because I believe they were both married to other people at the time. They were, in fact, yes. But what happened was that Lee left Man Ray in 1932 and went to the United States to start her own studio in New York. Now, that was a huge step. But she got backing. She opened Lee Miller, Inc., which was a studio. And she was, this was the Depression, but she... She got traction. She was moving ahead. She was shooting for Vogue. She was shooting portraits. And she was still doing the occasional really wacky surrealist image as well. And this was all going very well. And suddenly a man arrived called Aziz Elouis Bey, who she had known in Paris. And she'd had a fling with him there. And he asked her to marry him. And she did. And at a moment's notice, she, to everyone's shock, horror, she closed the studio, hopped on a liner and went back to Cairo with him because he was an Egyptian who lived in, in Cairo and Alexandria. And for a while, she was kind of happy living the wife of a very wealthy man and nothing to worry about. But she got very bored and started to make long range expeditions into the desert, taking amazing pictures of the desert, which are some of the finest shots of her whole career. But Aziz, her husband, was wonderfully indulgent and he realised that she really missed her friends in Paris, the art world people. And so he bought her an air ticket to Paris. Now, this was, this was like 1937 and air travel was just in its infancy. Some people unkindly said that he was hoping she would get rid of her when the plane crashed, but actually it wasn't like that at all because he was very devoted to her. But he probably might have done this differently if he had known that on the night that she arrived, she went to a fantastic party where all of her old surveillance friends were. And there, they were all in costume. She wasn't. She was in a blue dress. And there she met this guy who had one hand and one foot painted blue and was dressed like a tramp. <laughs> and his name was Roland Penrose. And he said that meeting her was like being struck by lightning. And he was never the same again. Because from that moment on, for the rest of her time in Europe, which was about a month, they were inseparable. They came to England. They went to the south of France. They had that, you may know that photograph, which we call Picnic, which the girls are all topless. and They're all sitting around having a wonderful time. And that was from that episode, from that holiday in France, where she met Picasso. And Picasso took such a fantastic shine to her. He painted her six times. And she photographed him in the course of her life more than a thousand times. So there was a very, very close connection there. And <clears throat> this was really the foundation of Lee and Roland's love and, and eventually their marriage because she had to go back to Egypt. And they met the following year. They traveled in Greece and Romania. <clears throat> they produced, an, well, Roland produced this incredible book, which we believe is, is probably the only English surrealist photo book. And it's his poem, which is a poem called The Road is Wider Than Long, about their travels together, which he illustrated with his own photographs and some collage and some drawings. It is a beautiful thing. 
And he took it to Egypt the following year and he gave it to Lee. And that was it. She then left Aziz with his blessing. He was very, very generous to her. She traveled to London, arrived on the 3rd of September, 1949, which was the start of the Second World War. Which I think to say changed everything is understatement of the <laughs> podcast so far. How did they react? Because they they seem to be quite different characters. We've, we've talked about sort of Roland's pacifism. What was Lee's take on, on the outbreak of war with, with Germany? Well, Lee was agonized because France was not yet occupied, but anybody could see that it soon would be. And she was aware that so many of her friends in Paris were the kind of people the Nazis would immediately target because they were left wing or they were intellectuals or they were Jews or they were the kind of people who stood up and made their views too strongly known. And so she was terrified for their safety and rightly too, because many of them were murdered by the Nazis. So she wanted to do something. And all the while she was getting letters from the American embassy saying return home immediately, which she tore up because she wasn't going to quit and leave her friends to face the Nazis alone, all the while she just had a ghost of a chance to do something. Nobody was going to give her an airplane or a gun or anything like that. So she used her camera as her weapon of choice. And to begin with, after she'd enrolled with Vogue, she was taking on her own account pictures of the Blitz in London. And this eventually got put together in a book called Grim Glory, Pictures of Britain Under Fire. And she was the main contributor to that book. And its idea was to wake up the Americans as to what was happening in London, how much we were suffering, and would they please come and help us? And so using her camera like that was actually a very important function to her and became much more important later. Gosh. I mean, war photography is, is a whole other kettle of fish here and it's so so important at this time to you know share the experience of war but lee gets a gig with british vogue which doesn't feel like perhaps the most obvious place for war reportage how did she get that gig at vogue well they they knew her already and all the british the male british vogue photographers were being called up uh, Cecil Beaton was having to work for the Ministry of Intelligence, but also he'd been banned from photographing for Vogue at that time because he <laughs> did some anti-Semitic pictures ah. in um, the American Vogue. Well, it was a picture with um, a hidden anti-Semitic phrase written on it, and they threw him out of Vogue for that, but he made his way back. And Anyway, she they knew her already. They had no photographer. They knew she could produce photographs that were to their standards and actually they needed a, they needed a fashion photographer that was a, as competent as she was and initially she you know she didn't become a war photographer until um, December 1943 she didn't she didn't get her accreditation until then but straight up from the beginning she as an American she wasn't allowed to work she didn't have a working visa so she volunteered initially um, after being, you know, asked to help out. And she shot a lot of fashion for them. Women in those days didn't read newspapers. And the best way for the government to get their messaging out to them 
was through women's magazines. So even though Vogue had its circulation cut because of paper rationing, they did work, them and other magazines worked really closely with the Ministry of Information and, and other government departments. And they were doing articles that were like, you know, about having having long hair was very fashionable, but suddenly that was very dangerous for women that were working in the factories. And they, you know, they presented this to, to Vogue and to the other women's magazines, these statistics about all these women who were getting their hair caught in machinery and being sculpted and things like that. So they were doing articles trying to make having your hair up or your hair short or wearing turbans when you're working in the factory fashionable still bringing that being fashionable is patriotic obviously the export of british fashion was important to to helping britain keep britain's finances sorry didn't veronica lake famously have her hair cut in, in that in that same campaign for keeping things I, I think so. They did yeah. all sorts of articles like yeah. like that. There was also, you know, initially it was patriotic to still keep fashion going, but then when rationing really started to come in and things um, resources became even more scarce, there was more articles about make do and mend, recycling, making those shorter hemlines that were, you know, now obligatory, fashionable and the thing to wear. This kind of austerity fashion. And the the government even went so far as to engage the major British designers at the time to become this um, ink sock group that would design the Girl Guides outfits and the factory workers outfits to to try and encourage women more to to take part in in what was going on in, in the war effort. And Lee did find sheeting hats and handbags a little bit boring but and and did question it sometimes but at the same time the messaging was so important in in encouraging they'd often do little articles with famous tennis stars um, and talking about what they're doing for the war effort as well as the fact that they've they've just won a championship (laughs) 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 and the fact that she likes to design is it Kay Stammers she likes to design her own tennis skirts too but they're short obviously (laughs) because of rationing well it was a big thing for women you know as soon as as soon as Lee got her accreditation and as soon as women were part of the war effort to go to Savile Row and get fitted for your for your uniform totally totally and we we still have her uniform and it's got its little labels in it from from Savile Row with its number oh my um, goodness which is fantastic she hadn't thought about becoming accredited initially but she knew Margaret Bork White from back in America Mm. she did a shoot with her and I'm sure that kind of brought up the thought because she did it with her in, in 1942 and then she also met Teresa Bonnet as well and photographed her and was lovers with David E. Sherman who was a life um, correspondent mm-hmm. and so through them I'm, I'm sure gathered all the information that made her determined that she was going to become one as well. I don't think she gave Vogue a huge amount of choice <laughs> in the fact that she was going to do it. She kind of, she more told them that she was doing it and and didn't get. But it was fantastic. The Audrey Withers, the British Vogue editor at the time, was really supportive, and she and Lee became this dynamic duo. 
and and realised the strength of what Lee could bring to and how the relevance of what Lee could bring to British folk as a war correspondent because it gave her access now to go and cover areas of, of what the women were doing in the armed forces so she could go and photograph the Wrens um, and that she could go and watch, photograph the Women's Land Army, the ATS Searchlight Battery and that kind of access that she couldn't have before and, and those articles start to trickle in and then of course she goes to Europe and starts covering covering the American ally advance after D-Day. This is a really... Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to jump in, Charlie, because yeah. we've, we've left out my favourite Vogue spread, which was the ATA at White Waltham spread. <laughs> which is, which so is how I'm I first sorry. started talking to you. <laughs> but I'm going to squeeze Analaska in one way or another, but it's it's a wonderful group group of shots of the, the, the female uh, delivery pilots down at White Waltham. And it's go look it up because it's it they are just stunning and there's something about the way lee has captured those pilots that epitomizes how we remember the ata today it's they're really really important photos we worked a few years ago with the imperial war museum on an exhibition called um, lee miller women at war and it just focused on her photographs of women and your Analeska picture was one of the she was the poster girl um, for the show but and it's actually really interesting because I, I think that Lee was very much aware that this what the women were doing may well be forgotten if she wasn't there to record it she was also aware of the extra access she got uh, when she photographed you know women in officer training you know getting dressed quickly that picture wouldn't necessarily have been allowed to have been taken by a male photographer but she understood them she'd been a model herself so she could coach them in how to pose so they felt confident and also she was another woman so she got that she gets to take pictures of their knickers hanging on the line (laughs) (laughs) when they're working in Oxford actually her photographs of the the rents one of the few records of the women and it was published as a uh, as a book solely of her photographs just at the end of the war. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at Burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at Burrow.com slash ACAST. Gosh, those, those photos of the, of, you know, the ATA girls, it, you, you sort of you forget the kind of life that was expected for women up to that point and what they could have expected as a life experience. The things that we take for granted, going, going away with your girlfriends was just not a thing that happened. So amidst all of the, 
all of the stuff that's going on, which is bigger than you and terrifying, they're these little snippets of women having fun together. And it's really, it's really beautiful to see. And I think only a woman could have, could have captured that moment. Yeah, totally. I'm going to leap ahead a question because okay. before we travel off to Europe again with Lee, I was just wondering, Anthony, what was Roland doing during this, this period? At the beginning of the war, Roland <clears throat> realised that uh, he would not be very good at killing people for a lot of reasons. It's kind of hard for pacifists to, to get into that sort of thing. But he wanted to protect people if he possibly could. So he and a bunch of other guys, including the artist Bill Hayter and Basil Spence and uh, Erno Goldfinger and others, got together to form a commercial camouflage company to help industrial people hide their factories from the air. And um, it was moderately successful, but suddenly the army realized that it had a value. And Roland became one of the chief lecturers for the Home Guard, and he wrote the Home Guard Manual of Camouflage, which is actually a cracking good little book. And he went on from there. He got commissioned into the regular army, became a captain, and went all over Britain and some of Europe, um, hiding things and uh, teaching people how to disappear. It was, a, it was a rather wonderfully surreal career for him. He had a, 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 he actually brought a picture of Lee into that, didn't he? To... <laughs> yes, that was one of his greatest achievements was he, he got Lee stripped off and he covered her all over in camouflage paint, which was a sort of brownie green kind of thing. And then she lay on the lawn with a bit of camouflage netting over parts of her. And she was photographed by their buddy, David E. Sherman, the American Life magazine photographer. And it was colour photographs and it was wonderfully successful. And Roland used them for his lectures to the troops. And he wrote to Lee at one point saying, darling, my lectures are sometimes the best attended in the camp. Sometimes people come back two or three times because obviously they wanted to see the pictures of Lee. <laughs> it was, some of his success was owed to her. In that I think the, the sales pitch he used was, if this can hide Lee Miller's charms. <laughs> absolutely, yes. If it can hide her from the enemy, then, then I can hide anything. Yeah. I think that's absolutely wonderful. What a partnership. It, on on partnerships, I mean, I I know Lee Miller very much through her work with Audrey Withers at British Vogue from the fabulous book Dressed for War, which we recommend to anybody. And I get mm, the sense from yeah, reading no, about yeah. Lee and Audrey's relationship that Lee was going to do what Lee wanted to do, and she was very lucky that she had such a supportive editor. So we got to the point D Day has happened, and Lee gets back to France. And I think that's what she always wanted to do was to get back. And, um, and she starts writing at this point as well as taking photographs. Yeah, she'd written a couple of articles in, in London before. She'd written an article around Ed Murray, the American broadcaster for CBS. And she'd written an article on Man Ray for Lilliput magazine. And I think that was all started because she got tired of other people interpreting her pictures. And that there is there was actually some frustration from her around how 
she felt that the a lot of the women people the the women in the forces that she was taking pictures of they weren't in the articles getting enough credit for actually what they were doing and they were the, the text that went with them was more about their clothes than their actual achievements and um so i think that pushed her into wanting to write for herself she wasn't trained as a writer at all i mean as a kid she'd been expelled from school three or four times but she did read and she was incredibly well read and i think for me when i it wasn't i mean i grew up with the archives and i've known her pictures all my life but it wasn't until i started reading her manuscripts um when she's writing about her war experiences that I really felt that I was inside her brain Mm -hmm. and, and how she, because she writes things, how she sees them and it's very raw and it's very real. And she doesn't care about what, what you might judge her for in the way she writes either. And she's quite judgy too sometimes. <laughs> the occasional side comment about somebody who also creeps in and gives you a good giggle. That's, that's what we love about her. Um, on that, do you mind if I share a little bit of, of Lee's writing? Because I think it is such a great way to get into her mind. And this is, this is her on seeing France after D-Day. She says, as we flew into sight of Florence, I swallowed hard on what were trying to be tears and remembered a movie actress kissing a handful of earth. My self-conscious analysis was forgotten in greedily studying the soft grey sky panorama of nearly a thousand square miles of France, of freed France. It was France. The trees were the same with little pantaloons like eagles and the wool farms, the austere Norman architecture. I found that it was no longer France, but a vast military area of planes, soldiers and gargantuan material. And that's sent to Vogue. Fabulous. Audrey was an amazing editor as well. Often because Lee had no idea about how a war correspondent was supposed to write, they start off as more personal letters and then they become a dispatch. And then she does a bit more of a personal comment to Audrey herself. And so Audrey had to edit her her material incredibly well like her first major scoop as as in combat when she went to St Marlowe she was sent there I mean as a war correspondent the women were had a different accreditation to men they were we were considered the weaker sex so women were not allowed to cover combat as part of their accreditation after the D-Day landing she was very much doing casualty clearing hospitals, safe area, you know, away from the fighting. And when they sent her to St. Marlowe, she was supposed to be doing the same kind of thing, but the intelligence had got it wrong. And she ends up in her, what she calls her own private war, (laughs) because nobody had told them that the Colonel von Aulock was holed up in the old part of St. Marlowe's and was still, you know, was still fighting to keep it and, all the other journalists had been sent elsewhere. Uh, so she was the only journalist there for the first three or four days and had her. And, and that's when she crossed the line and started covering combat. For- In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. 
We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. The first time. It, it's, it's one of those nasty little sieges that happens when most of our attention with Nor- Normandy has moved moved into the big operations further south. And St. Malo was a brutal, nasty little fight. And it's, you know, Lee's, Lee's reporting and, and the photographs are just absolutely mesmerizing because it's, they literally had to destroy the town to, to root the Germans out. And side note, it was also one of the first times the ninth tactical air force dropped napalm in Europe. Absolutely, yes. And she photographed that. And when the photographs got to Vogue, they took them to the British censor. And to begin with, they were released. And then suddenly they were grabbed back. And there was a tremendous fuss about it. And they were completely withdrawn because Napalm was still on the secrets list. And these bombs gave off a very different smoke pattern to the normal high explosives. It was like a mushroom cloud. So anybody could have seen that there was something odd going on there. All of Lee's writings are written in a book which is called Lee Miller's War Beyond D-Day and the whole account of, of the uh, San Malo siege is in there. And of course, what makes it so fascinating is that it was an infantry assault against a fixed position. So it wasn't a battle that was fast moving across miles of frontier. This was all in one place, highly intense and happening in that moment. And there were a lot of civilians involved who had to be got out of the way. Uh, it was absolutely a set-piece battle, and they couldn't have been more fortunate enough in being dumped in the middle of that. She did get put under house arrest afterwards, though. <laughs> yeah, for violating the terms of her accreditation. Yeah. But that gave her time to write the story. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, she would have been right off to Paris as yeah. fast as she could. Is that, is that what the photograph of her in bed dictating with the eggs and the champagne <laughs> no, that's in um, that's in Hotel Scribe in Paris. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, which is where she ends up next and starts reuniting mm. with with the friends who are left and starts noticing how many are not there anymore. This was an incredibly painful moment for her because so many of her friends had gone missing. You see, a lot of the fashion industry. Um, had Jewish seamstresses, and they were gone, the petit mains. They were just not there. And nobody could really willingly supply an explanation as to where they'd gone, because at that moment, the existence of the death camps was not fully understood. It was not public. But within a few days, it was. And there is this incredibly heart-rending picture of a reunion of Lee, and Roland, who smuggled himself over to Paris on a supply plane, and Picasso, and Paul and Nouche Edouard, and Elsa Triolet, and Louis Aragon in Picasso's studio. And you would have thought it was a moment for the massive celebration, but they are all looking so glum. And the reason they're looking glum is they've just learned of the existence of the death camps, and they have realized that none of their missing friends are ever likely to come back home again. The realization that coupled with what should see later, which we'll get to in a moment, must have been something. But the career takes a slight detour at this point, doesn't it? Because she's she's no longer racing forward with the troops. She's back in fashion. Well, it's, it's a it's a she has to have a split personality 
because she gets asked by British Vogue to base herself at the Hotel Scribe, which is the main journalist space in, in Paris, but also to help uh, and to continue to report, but also to help relaunch French Vogue. So there's these crazy moments where she's kind of racing off in the winter to cover sections of the Battle, Battle of the Bulge, and then she's coming back to Paris to shoot fashion. And um, at the same time, trying to work out, uh, you know, in, initially in Paris, there was no electricity. So you'd have to sh- for her fashion shoots, she'd have to shoot by available light. A lot of the models didn't want to model because maybe their husbands had been taken and they didn't know where they were. And if, if they were exposed in the magazine, if that might put them at risk. Um, some were collaborators, some of the fashion houses um, the, the designer had fled, like, for example, Elsa Schiaparelli. She had left Paris, but she'd left her studio manager in charge. So, And Lee and Elsa were quite good friends. So Lee wanted to make sure that Elsa Schiaparelli's work was featured in British Vogue and the new French Vogue edition when it did eventually come out in January 1945. And it was coordinating all of that and then just running off to do a casual battle <laughs> here and there, coming back, <laughs> writing it up, sending it back again. It's crazy that we have hundreds of pages of messages between her and British Vogue in, in the whole coordination of, of the relaunch of French Vogue. De Brunhoff, who was the French Vogue editor, had done an amazing job of hiding French Vogue's printing press so that the Nazis couldn't get hold of it and use it for for other means. Mm. Unfortunately, the week before Paris was liberated, his son had been shot by the Nazis. And so it was a terrible, you know, a terrible moment personally for him to then have to start relaunching French Vogue. So Lee ended up coordinating a lot more of it I think than had been initially anticipated but she she rose to the challenge and wasn't going to miss out on 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 the allied advance either (laughs) they are both exciting in their own ways and and there were big conversations between British Vogue and French Vogue about the the differences in in the attitude to clothes and fabric. So whereas British women were being told, you know, to be, to make do and mend and to, to be extravagant is, is not a good thing. It's unpatriotic. The French women, because they're under Nazi occupation, actually using as much fabric up as you possibly could was an act of defiance. And the hats, sort of having an extravagant hat was a way of thumbing your nose at the, at the Nazi occupiers. I just think that's absolutely wonderful. Yeah, I mean, there's Lee was really upset actually when she saw the British reaction to the because she she sent the first French fashion pictures back to British folk to be published there because they were desperate to know what had been happening on, on the French fashion scene while while it had been under occupation and she was desperately upset that there was this huge misunderstanding and outcry by the British public about what the French were doing and they were you know we've been suffering all this time and here they are with their massive frilly dresses and their huge hairdos and they they didn't realize that they sometimes they were wearing makeup was it was an even was even an act of defiance sometimes women were crushing beetles and things just to make sure that they could have red lipstick because the German soldiers they were instructed to be plain and to have short hair and to be very kind of 
boringly dressed. So to be more, to, to go more and more to the other extreme was, was such a massive resistance movement. Let's get into Germany because it, it's, it's a death house by the point Lee arrives in it. And there's a, there's a few bits I'd, I'd love to talk about. The, the, the one in, has always stuck out to me is the photograph she took of, of the, the Lisos in, um, in Leipzig. Yeah. Because she wasn't the only one to take those photographs, but hers are very different to, say, Capra's or Margaret Borg-White's. Kappa and Burke White shot exactly what was to be expected for Life magazine and that sort of publication. Lee shot what she wanted, what she wanted to show. So she, yes, she did a wide shot, but then she gets in close and she photographs Kurt Listow and then she pho- photographs Mrs. Listow and then she goes right up to Regina Listow, the daughter who's lying spread back on this sofa and takes a picture of her. And she lets her look beautiful. And there's this extraordinary dichotomy of the fact that this is a girl who has just killed herself by taking cyanide capsules, who was a Nazi. Yet Lee is looking into that face and thinking, you have exceptionally pretty teeth. And it's like, oh, I wish you had chosen a different path to being a Nazi, you know? It's just that agony of looking at this woman who was a human being who had been swept up into things beyond her control and ended up dead on the sofa. And all of that is captured in that, in that photograph. You, you look at it and this beautiful girl, as you, as you said, and you, you know, this is going to sound up, you know who she was, you, you, you know why she took her life for this this collapse of the ideal that she had but yet it just jumps out of out of the image yes well it's thought that they expected the city to be taken by the russians and it was a very bad idea to be caught by the russians if you were a leading nazi and an even worse idea to be caught by them if you were a woman leading nazi so that was the end of their lives and the and, and a great many other people in that moment killed themselves as well it's been it's been called a disease that just sort of swarmed the country. Um, mm. you know, Florian Huber's book about it is is the sort of thing that keeps you up at night. Um, it's, and Regina Lisso, I think, is on the front cover, isn't she? Yeah, she's but, on on the front cover of the, of, of the paperback. Um, yeah, uh, which which is probably the perfect image for that because yeah. it encapsulates so much. Things don't get much better because she moves moves to Dachau next, doesn't she? Well, yes, and. On the way, it's worth noting that her male colleagues remembered her being incredibly brave. And John Phillips, who was another Life magazine correspondent, he he said to me, when things got bad, Lee Miller was the person we always wanted to be with because she never panicked. She always had a plan and she usually had whiskey and cigarettes. I think coming from a guy like John Phillips, who was one of the most distinguished combat photographers of his time, that is pretty good. She was with her buddy, David Sherman, who was another Life magazine photographer. And those two guys, they just looked out for each other and they watched each other's backs. And they were right there until the very end of the war. And where did the war end for them? Well, it ended soon after they had been in Dachau. And of course, when they arrived in Dachau, This was probably the fourth, if not the fifth, concentration camp that Lee had been to. It's the one in a way that she photographed most extensively because she was there 
less than 24 hours after it had been liberated. And it was so fresh and so appallingly in her face that I think it must have been an absolutely traumatically dreadful experience. Of course, she'd seen other camps by that time. And of course, she'd realized that this is where her missing friends from Paris had probably ended up. And I think there was a tremendous bitterness. Sherman said that she photographed encased in an ice cold fury of hate and disgust. Um, it was very much that was her wall of protection, the hatred, as she stood behind her camera and recorded it to show us what had happened. Then when she sent the pictures to Audrey Withers, she tagged them, I implore you to believe this is true, because already there were people who were denying the existence of the camps. And with those images, you, you, you just can't, because they are yeah. vivid. Well, then that night after photographing Dachau, they went on to Munich, where they wangled their way into Hitler's apartment. And Lee has the famous bath in Hitler's tub. And then after hanging around there for a couple of days and photographing not only Hitler's house, but even Braun's residence as well, they heard that things were moving ahead and they went on to Dexis Garden, which is, you know, about 30, 40 kilometres towards Austria. And they were in Dexis Garden when they saw a column of smoke, which was Hitler's Obersalzburg mountain retreat going up in smoke and they persuaded a couple of GIs to take them, Lee and Sherman, in a jeep because this was like four miles ahead of the front line of the army. Uh, this was un unliberated territory, uncaptured territory and off they went and Lee photographed Sherman standing in front of Hitler's house which was blazing from top to bottom uh, in that in the, in the evening light and what an incredibly crazy and brave thing to do because they would have been an easy target for snipers and there were plenty of German soldiers still around that area but in a way I think they knew this was the end of the war and it, the war did end, end a few days later but this was this kind of symbolic funeral pyre of the Third Reich as they called it. And they were in Hitler's apartment. They were living in Hitler's apartment when they'd found out when Hitler had killed himself, but they didn't know at the time, did they? Yeah. Gosh. The same day that Lee and Sherman were washing themselves in Hitler's tub, Hitler and Eva Braun, way across Germany in Berlin, were busy killing themselves. So in that moment, there was a kind of huge circles that joined but of course, they didn't know that until the next day. Of course. I mean, what, what Lee captured in that sort of crazy 18-month period of running around Europe is, is just incredible. She was absolutely on the front line of all, of all of these most incredible, interesting bits of history. And she photographs every single person with such humanity. Yeah, we can we can still look at these photos today, which is incredible. Mm. So the war... I mean, she didn't stop that. No. She... <laughs> exactly. So the war is done. She, went, she, goes, she goes off to Denmark and photographs the liberation of Denmark 
And then even after the other war correspondents had gone home, she pushes herself to continue to to travel and, and cover what's happened because she feels like she needs to know why all these people have died and and what this brave new world that they were told they were fighting for, whether it really was worth it. But unfortunately she she finds just more suffering and doesn't come she doesn't come back to England until February 1946. She did ask the hard question, can Europe be saved? And is it worth saving? Which I I haven't read that question at that time from anybody. She really did push the envelope and and immerse herself and ask things that, you know, perhaps people weren't asking. It's very important that you've recognised that, yeah. Yes, yeah. How did she adjust to peacetime when the when the work was done and coming back and getting married and living in Sussex? How was that adjustment? It was tough, just like it was for most other women that had suddenly been told they had brains and they could do things. And then the war's over and they have to go back to the kitchen sink again. Whereas for Lee, she's not going back to the kitchen sink. She's going back to shooting hats and handbags. And suddenly that just feels a little bit futile when you've watched these life-shattering world world events and documented them so close. To try and make that relevant and exciting was really hard. Mm. And she also had these demons in her head these memories, these photographs that she couldn't erase from, from her brain. And what we think is what, what today would be described as PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder that she was suffering from. Um, and she, she, but in those days, just like everybody else, and she even wrote about it, that the boys are coming back with broken hearts and broken minds. At the time, you were told to put up and shut up and get on with it. Uh, you know, we all had to get back to normal again and forget about what had happened as if that was a, a completely different part of our lives or a, another world. And that was really difficult for her. Um, and Vogue were brilliant. They sent her on this kind of heroines tour around America, <laughs> which she kind of, which she ditched and used to go off and see all of her artist friends who'd escaped there. But she found it really hard and they, they were really supportive as, as much as they could be. I, I mean, I think when I look at her, you know, when we, we're lucky enough to work sometimes with contemporary and to meet contemporary war correspondents and they talk about triggers, you know, when, when you cut, you know, it's your job as a war correspondent to, to record what's going on and send your pictures so that they're published and so that the world knows what's happening. And then to come, when you come back to talk about it and to present and you can avoid the triggers that, you know, will, will, will bring out these, these memories in your head to a certain extent. But what you can't predict is, is that kind of left field question that you'll get from somebody in the audience or somebody that you meet who knows your work. And I think that is something that she had to learn how to navigate herself without even having this kind of analysis. And she eventually, 1953 was her last major picture 
uh, article that she wrote for as well and decided to bury her photography career and reinvent herself as a gourmet cook. And the last two decades of her life, she celebrated as Lee Miller, hostess with the mostess, <laughs> <laughs> and written up in Vogue magazine and Vanity Fair for, for her cooking skills, which is an ama- is a fantastic dis- disguise and way of, of, of getting people to stop talking to her about her war work, because there's a whole new focus. And she's just that much of a polymath that she can turn her hand to all sorts of things. She loved living at Farley's because in the middle of rationing, you've got, she's got her own vegetable garden. She's got her own cattle. They could bring food up to London to share with their friends who are suffering from the rationing. But also it encouraged her to learn things like making preserves and jams initially because they had this abundance from the orchard. And, and she had this amazingly amazing inquiring mind so of course she wanted to learn how to butcher a cow <laughs> and of course she wanted to make her own cream separating machine and and going for all the competitions possible uh, around cooking recipes for canned food and things like that I, I love the fact that in, in in photography terms, you can overcook a print. Obviously, get your food very wrong if you mix your if you mix your ingredients wrong, as you can with your photographs. She even says in in a couple of her interviews in in uh, cooking articles that food is therapy or cooking is therapy. And I think when you've witnessed people starving and people suffering from lack of you know food and being separated from their friends, to be able to create something beautiful and then sit down with those friends of yours who have survived and give that to them is, is a wonderful moment to, to be able to celebrate. And you've written a wonderful book all about that. <laughs> yeah, my giant pink brick that took 10 years <laughs> of research. <laughs> Which is actually propping up sort of half of my desk at the moment. No, it's, 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 it's right. <laughs> well, um, we did think if it didn't sell, we could just build a little shed with them. <laughs> Lee Miller, A Life with Food, Friends and Recipes. I can highly recommend. It's out now. Grab it. And we're going to change tact a little bit because, Anthony, you're in our story now. We've, 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 we've reached you. But I guess one, one more question about, about Roland's his post-war was was quite different because he he founded a rather influential institute didn't he yes same year as i born was born he founded the institute of contemporary arts the ica which is still going in a very different form but it's still going in london at this very moment and he also began to write he was commissioned to write the biography of picasso in 1954 came out four years later and here was this guy who you know, who's dyslexic, um, but he did it. He did it just by sheer tenacity and the love of his subject. And Lee supported him by photographing. So there are many pictures that she took, not only of Picasso's, but of the other artists that she wrote about, like Man Ray or Juan Miro or Anthony Tapiers. And she supported him by taking portraits and pictures that would be useful for research. So we've got pictures of Picasso's birthplace and the places he hung out in, in Malaga and that kind of stuff. 
And they're, they're amazing shots. So that was a kind of du duet that they were performing at that time. And she was also very encouraging for the ICA and things like that. But her photography wasn't published as such in a magazine ever again, really. That was the end when she left Vogue in 53. But she did continue to take pictures, and I'm very glad of that because that gives us a kind of record of the evolution of our home at Farley Farm and our lives together and those of us, those, those people who were our friends at the time. And it's this lovely record. And it kind of reads almost like a picture story. We're going to start to wrap up, but I do have one important question to ask you, Anthony. Did you really bite Picasso? <laughs> yes, I certainly did. I bit him because we were we were having a, a game and uh, it was bullfights. Uh, it was way before I understood how really obnoxious bullfighting is, but I was the bull and Picasso was the matador and I would run at him and try and gore him. But of course, he was too quick on his feet and I'd miss every time. And I got a bit fed up with my lack of success. So I waited until he wasn't looking and then I crept up and I bit him. <laughs> And he turned around and he bit me straight back. Oh. And before I started to yell, my mum said she heard him say, huh, that's the first Englishman I've ever been. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether he went on to bite others, but I was the first. Oh, my <laughs> I suppose one, you, you could ask, what did, what did the great artist taste like? But that's, prob that's probably a bit, <laughs> a bit too much. Well, I would say he tasted arty. <laughs> <laughs> So Anthony and Amy, what are you what are you doing to carry on Lee and Roland's legacy? Well, after my mum had died, it was Amy's mother, my late wife, Susanna, who found the stash in the attic. And there was something like 60,000 negatives and thousands of pages of manuscript. And it's taken us just about 40 years to catalogue archive, assemble, cross-reference, all of this work. The most recent product to come out of it is the book that Amy's been managing and contributing to, which is Lee Miller Fashion in Wartime Britain. And that has an exhibition and that's touring all over Europe. And so, yeah, we, we're, still, we're still kind of like mining the archive and it's still full of very rich stuff. There's plenty of things that we haven't been into yet. And, and have will have the opportunity in, in, in years to come. So with things opening up, how can we come and visit? Because I'm definitely going to be doing that as just as just as soon as my little legs can dash, dash across our sex. Well, if you want to see the Fashion in Wartime Britain exhibition, you've got until the 8th because it closes then. And then hopefully it's going on tour in possibly Italy and, and Norway. Um, so that's a good excuse for a nice holiday, I guess. <laughs> obviously the books available Farley's House and Gallery is open to the public on Thursdays and Sundays and you can pre-book tickets either just for the exhibitions in the garden or for them and the tour as well on our website um, we always it we only open between April and October of every year because then it gets too wet and miserable for people to want to come and see us but we do every year work tirelessly with lots of museums all over the world and we tend to have in the last 12 years on average four Lee Miller head headlining exhibitions somewhere in the world so at the moment we've got a 
Lee Miller exhibition on at the Dali Museum in Florida in America. And we have a, an exhibition of 110 of her um, European World War II photographs that's on X in Rüsselsheim in Oppenville in Germany at the moment. That's on, I think it closes in October. So you've got a bit of time to try and get there. It's probably worth mentioning also our Instagram. The Lee Miller Archives has its own Instagram account and its own website. Our Instagram account is at Lee Miller Archives. And then the Lee Miller has her own website, which is leemiller.co.uk. If you're more in interested in seeing more of her material. We have over 60,000 negatives in our collection and we're slowly digitalizing them. I think we've done about 1%. <laughs> so you can see about 6,000 of her pictures on there. But yeah, we'll get there. <laughs> we eventually, we want to make sure that Lee's legacy and Roland's legacy is always there and that people will always be able to access it through coming to Farley's and our exhibitions and through the museum exhibitions that we work with internationally. I can safely say that we have, and it's much overused, but barely scratched the surface of, of the lives of Roland and Lee. So please, to all our listeners, reach out, learn more, come to Sussex. It's lovely in the, well, in the summertime at least. <laughs> and I just like to say on, on behalf of all this, thank you, Anthony and Amy, so much for spending this time to, to talk about Lee and Roland. It has been a pure delight. Thank you. Thank you for having thank us. Thank you both. Charlie and I would just like to thank Anthony Penrose and Amy Bohassain once again for joining us. We've put the links to Farley's house and the Lee Miller archive in the description to this podcast. We have also put Anthony and Amy's biographies of Lee on our very own bookshop, along with Julie Summers' stunning biography of Audrey Withers' Dressed for War. So if you head to bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, where you can pick up those wonderful biographies and support the podcast as well, as 10% of each sale goes to keep us going. So we hope you're able to get down to Farley's at some point over the summer. And until the next time, thanks for listening.